This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Okay, good afternoon, buenas tardes. Uh, Thank you for being here. Uh, I'd like to um, start off my talk about um, the border by, and, and solidarity um, by, by focusing on abortion rights. Um, when the U.S. Supreme Court uh, threatened to overturn Roe v. Wade earlier in this year, uh, Mexican feminist and rights organizations uh, had set up networks across the border to assist people uh, seeking to end their pregnancy. Organizing collectives across Mexico built up over a decades-long struggle in that country to decriminalize and legalize abortion, which they have won the first major steps towards in 2021, uh, turned their attention to assisting people north of the border, uh, where we see time going backwards. Collectives from feminists and radical collectives from the Yucatan to Chihuahua uh, fundraised to buy abortion pills, produced and sold cheaply and widely available in Mexico. Others helped smuggle abor- abortion pills into the U.S., stuffed inside toys, jars of vitamins, or sewn into the hems of clothing. While others on this side of the border have operated medicine banks out of private homes to collect and distribute them. Still others found shelters and safe houses in Mexican border cities, to host US people from the US seeking safety and security to terminate pregnancies. By June of 2022, Mexican activists had assisted thousands of people from the US who could not attain sufficient abortion services in the US, or who had to do so clandestinely through cross-border underground networks. And since the overturning of Roe vs. Wade, um, this activity has increased significantly. This urgent act of solidarity by Mexican uh, people towards U.S. people is an example how, the, how in the U.S. Uh, in Me- and people in Mexico can work together to subvert the border through common struggle and through mutual support. It also illustrates that U.S.-Mexico cross-border solidarity is a growing phenomenon that is becoming more necessary. And uh, necessary as, our, uh, as the two uh, countries become more economically and politically interconnected and integrated. And in effect, aligning more and more sections of the working class and oppressed sectors uh, of both countries into similar economic and political spheres and circumstances where their collective resistance and struggle can, their, their struggle can only succeed if we unite collectively and organize transnationally. So um, I'm going to do uh, something where I kind of I want to outline my main arguments and then go back and give more information to support them. The first one is uh, 
The first argument I'd like to make is that the U.S. capitalist class through the years has always seen and treated Mexico as a resource and labor colony to be exploited for the accumulation and profit and, a, and as a subordinate state that must be directed and administered in the, in the orbit of U.S. imperialism. A facet of original accumulation, i.e. nation building, in fact, for the United States was achieved through uh, invasion, colonization of Mexico, uh, and ultimately the cutting off of and, and assimilating a Mexican proletariat within the expanding borders of the US, and subsequently maintaining reserve armies of labor uh, that ex have extended across and into the country ever since. The Mexican Revolution, one of the greatest significant historic acts of revolutionary uprising and social change. Uh, the revo this revolution of the 20th century was in part an anti-imperialist revolution against US uh, economic colonization and underdevelopment. And as I explain in the book, and I might say this a few times so, so that I can cut right through and encourage you to go back and look at it. Uh, what the defeat of the, what, the what happened in the revolution was the defeat of revolutionary socialist movements that were not strong enough to carry the revolution forward into a uh, revolution, a, revo a socialist revolution, um, and effectively uh, folding in, into what became a bourgeois nationalist revolution. This revolution effectively ran its course uh, through much of the 20th century, but without the success, the success that was intended. And because of the proximity and the role of the United States empire and the preeminence of U.S. capital, the effort to advance a Mexican, an independent Mexican capitalism and transform the revolution into a motor of independent national development was ultimate, ultimately derailed and defeated, um, opening the door to what I characterize as neo or semi-colonialism in the vein of Lenin's classical analysis. Since the late 1970s, the magnitude of U.S. capital export and international capital export has increased exponentially, resulting in three important or several important features of modern transnational political economy that I will focus on here. And I'm going to refer to it as the North American model because I want to argue that, it's, that there are different ways in which things, political economy and capitalist development occur in different parts of the, of the, of the world. And I'm not trying to speak to all of that. I'm trying to speak specifically to uh, North America. Through the forced compulsion of Mexico's economy, through debt crisis, neo-colonial, neoliberal restructuring, free trade, U.S. and international capital have taken full or partial ownership of the commanding heights and vast stretches of the Mexican economy. And I, and I would just argue here that this also pertains to much of Central America and the Caribbean, although I won't necessarily refer to them, but I'm also in sort of including the larger region uh, as part of this analysis. Taking it over to the point that it can be argued that much of Mexican industry, finance, agriculture, and other sectors can be uh, not, extent, not, not fa uh, factors of, a, of, a, of an independent Mexican capitalist economy, but rather uh, extensions of the U.S. economy into Mexico. Um, the scale of neocolonial penetration, um, you know, uh, I'm going to be referencing these, this concept of supply chains, which is just, you know, a way in which capitalism has uh, established itself internationally, uh, and very much so between the United States and Mexico. So the, the, this, this penetration means that the North American in, industrial production and the working classes have become significantly transnationalized. 
in character. So like I said, supply chain production means production across borders, uh, capital chasing, um, for the most part, cheaper, more exploitable labor. Um, but not only that, but capital has also transplanted in, in the way in which uh, many of the retail, much of the retail sector of the United States is also dominant in Mexico. And so you can go industry by industry and see different ways in which capital has, has crossed the border. So this means that uh, ma uh, many, a significant portion of the workers of both sides of the border work in the same assembly lines or at different stages of the same production chains or have the same capitalist exploiters, the same Walmart boss bosses. They work for the same corporations. And this goes you know, all the way through finance sector, you know, through agriculture, um, through, through much of the economy. A large section, um, you know, as I said, has crossed the border a lot, I'm sorry, and not only has capital cross borders, but people have been displaced in cross borders as well, although we're going to see that they've become too, the way they're treated are, are entirely, you know, the way, the way capital labor, there's a divergence there in terms of how the law, how policy, how bourgeois politics treats those. Um, and I would argue that because of the scale of capitalist penetration um, and the implications for the sort of political for politics is that um, Mexican politics have become tightly constrained within a U, uh, U.S. imperialist framework, meaning uh, there's limitations in terms of what, how, how independently Mexico can act, um, uh, you know, in, in relationship to what U.S. policy dictates. Tens of millions of Mexican workers, large numbers of workers in other countries in the region, including um, Af uh, migrants from other parts of the world, a lot of African migrants, for instance. Uh, have entered into Mexico uh, and are repressed labor in Mexico and they work in uh, Mexican industry of course but but they work uh, also in this international capital US capital uh, the, these clusters and so these uh, these workers are uh, a, 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 an essential source of capital accumulation and profit in part because uh, of forcibly keeping wages and working conditions as, as low as possible. And uh, I'll get more into that more in a minute, but I want to argue that th this, has, this process has reached such a scale that it's, it's not a temporary or transi transitional or, or something that can, can be go backwards. It's a hardwired feature into how uh, U.S. North American capitalism operates. And I say that because um, I don't think it can be reformed away. Um, I think it's it's essentially um, uh, something that's going to require much more, which I'll talk about briefly as well. So, um, and the result of that we we see, right? We see um, in, in Mexico uh, unions are have been smashed or um, are non-existent, um, or um, do the opposite of what unions should do, which is they work for the companies, they work for the capitalists instead of for the for the workers. Um, and living in, in product, uh, the conditions are so bad that six out of, only about four out of 10 workers are actually in the formal economy in Mexico. About six out of 10 are informal workers, which means they, they don't, they're not registered through any government agency to get social security. They work, um, they work, you know, under the table or they, or they basically just try to make enough each day to get to the next. Um, and of course, a significant percentage of that population also crosses uh, borders looking for jobs in other parts of uh, North America. 
Okay. Okay, so, um, so these factors have created, as I've already indicated, U.S.-Mexico working class convergence. Um, and taken together, taken together in terms of U.S. capital, the exploitation of workers across borders, the migration, the way that uh, cross-border transnational workers have integrated to some degree into the class north of the border, all of these things mean that um, that we, we have to sort of understand that it's not completely possible to look at these as two different classes anymore or, or struggle as something that's defined by borders. And um, we, uh, workers essentially um, less and less are going to be able to act as if uh, the, the parameters of uh, their labor exploitation are confined to uh, either the U.S. or from the Mexican standpoint to Mexicans or beyond. Um, <clears throat> okay, the integration, expansion, and internationalization of what I described uh, is what I described as the bordering of capitalism. And so, so from an international scale, we see the growth of border of border enforcement, border walls. You know, since the since the late 1990s, uh, we now have close to 80 different parts of the world that have border uh, border enforcement infrastructure being built. Um, and I and I bring this up because I think. Uh, in, in part um, because of the crisis of capitalism, but also because the U.S. Um, all, you know, in many ways sets the standard for um, labor exploitation and innovative techniques that are, are then replicated. Um, and it's not to let other capitalists off the hook, but I just think the U.S. does this so well, right? The U.S. state and the U.S. capitalist class, you know, um, it has so much command over how to um, use the state in their own interests. Um, you know, to um, develop methods for um, increasing the rate of exploitation of, of labor within the country and across borders. And so this is an innovation in, from that point of view that is being replicated, and not just because it's cool from the other point of, standpoint of other capitalists, but because they have to, because they have to also figure out how to be competitive and accumulate more um, from their workers, especially those, you know, um, crossing borders. Okay. Um, and this process is, did not have to happen, right? Um, it's the result of the defeat of the working class struggles of the previous periods, the defeat of the revolutionary and radical left organizations, um, and the, the, the collapse of much of the infrastructure, uh, you know, of resistance. Um, and I'm talking over the last several decades, right? Um, and so, um, so this is a reflection of what, what it looks like when our class uh, is not uh, organized and when um, when we do not have sufficient revolutionary socialist organizations and other types of organizations that can play a capacity, a, a role of organizing uh, resistance and building class opposition to these policies. And it becomes normalized essentially through the political system as a whole, not, not just through one party. Okay, I'm, I'm digressing here a little bit. Um, <clears throat> therefore, the, as I mentioned, the capitalist class is in a position where it can only go forward in expanding um, this source of renewed wealth, or this this way of restoring capital accumulation um, in the in in, in re relation to previous epochs of capitalist crisis, and of course the the ongoing epoch that we're in right now. And so, really, much of the formalization of this system has happened just in the last 10 or 15 years, um, where there's been uh, in the U.S. politics there's been such a a convergence around the bordering of capitalism that. Um, there really is very little substance of disagreement between the two political parties, um, at least at the, at the, you know, at the top. Okay. 
Therefore, there, I, I would like to argue that there can be no uh, reformist or bourgeois electoralist path toward border deconstruction or the dismantling of what I refer to as the migra state, the, this massive side of the state repressive apparatus that has been built up to basically repress um, and control um, transnational labor. There's no way of, of getting the capitalists to, to dismantle this. There's, it's, it's become so normalized that it's not even, um, you know, it's, it's unthinkable. Um, and so that means that only escalating scales of class struggle and the revolutionary overthrow of the rule of capital itself um, is bound up with the uh, abolition of, of bordering and border enforcement. Okay. So let me go back a few minutes. Uh, a few minutes. I'm looking at my stopwatch. Let me go back a few years and talk about the um, go back to the concept of the Mexican Revolution. So um, in roughly the 150-year period uh, of history of shared history between the United States and Mexico, um, the, the revolution was a, uh, was a rupture in this kind of um, colonial and imperial sort of relationship. During the period of 1906 to 1920, Mexico uh, was racked by a bare-knuckled bare war of class against class for supremacy in that country, a result of several decades building up in which international capital led by the US flooded in, concentrated on such a scale that practically all social classes except uh, sections of the bourgeoisie uh, at that time in that country were crushed under the scale and weight of extraction, exploitation, and displacement. And I'm, I'm, I'm re referring to this because I'm also arguing that this is happening now. So much so that Mexico became a pivotal theater in the great imperial war known as World War I. Uh, while the defeat of the peasant and worker-led masses of revolt prevented the full expropriation of capital and the transition to socialism like, it, like was happening in Russia at the time, uh, instead there was the consolidation of a new, ultimately what became a new nationalist bourgeoisie and it did a try. It did. It was a blow against imperialism, right? It, it basically redefined the relationships between the U.S. and Mexico for for several decades in a way that was not favorable to the U.S. Um, uh, and but ultimately, uh, the, the the what I argue is a, a form of state capitalism that developed um, ultimately failed. And I go in great detail in the book as to why. Probably not going to do so in this talk. Um, but just trust me when I say I did a lot of work researching this. <laughs> okay, um, the, the experiment with uh, state capitalism as a method of national capitalist development in Mexico came to roughly to an end in the 1970s. And again, I'm differentiating this model around Mexico specifically. There are different ways of talking about other countries that went through similar trajectories. But in Mexico, I argue that this was defeated. This, even this kind of um, you know, fundamental bourgeois revolution ultimately um, was unsuccessful. Uh, and the, uh, the sort of beginning of the end was during the global capital, capitalist crisis of 1974, 75, that period. By the late 70s, the US state went on the offensive on behalf of its capitalist class and saw one major way out of its capitalist crisis by looking south to restore profitability and kickstart accumulation amid stagnation and rising global competition from Europe and Japan, the state de deployed a financial uh, arsenal against the, uh, the Mexican uh, post-revolutionary state 
in the form of a decades-long debt-induced restructuring plan that transformed Mexico from the model of third-world developmentalist um, capitalism uh, to a laboratory for open markets and plunder for international capital. Uh, the scale and magnitude of this uh, process is, I mean, it, it's, it's monumental. Of course, it's not talked about in, in, in U.S. society because it's still part of how capital works. Um, <clears throat> so Mexico today is the most open economy in the world, uh, ahead of number two and three, which is the U.S., uh, China and the U.S., in terms of free market, uh, uh, free marketization, the opening of, of the economy. Um, and in the book, I talk a lot about a lot of the consequences of this, um, and, and which leads me to my characterization of, of, of this being a form of semi-neo or semi-colonialism that has reemerged. Um, it, it destroyed um, decades worth of Mexican investment in its own economy, uh, the state-led um, developmentalist project, which by the way is where Mexico's first crop of billionaires came from after privatization of these state-owned industries, and then many of these billionaires sold it to U.S. companies, which then made billions more dismantling, restructuring, etc. Um, it led to this, this period of neoliberal, neocolonial restructuring led to the uh, spread throughout the Latin America, pr producing what's called, what's referred to as the lost decade, where the standard of living and wages, everything went back a whole period because of uh, the impoverishment associated with the plunder of the expansion of free market trade and the crises that accompanied that, the Asian financial crises of the 90s. Um, and, um, you know, I can go on because um, I think they're all interconnected all the way up to where we're at today. Um, but I would say that, um, the un, you know, the, the experience of, pl of places like Mexico and others going through this process um, has create, you know, created the conditions that we see today, the, the, barber, the barbaric the, the inhumane realities that are facing uh, poor and working class people in former colonized and now semi-colonized countries around the world. Crushing debt that's forcing, that's creating starvation in, in parts of the world that didn't have it previously. Um, you know, the underdevelopment, the incapacity to respond to the, the conditions of the pandemic, where people are literally dying in the streets like, in, like they were in uh, Ecuador and Peru, right? I mean, the, it's, you know, the world is a mess, and, and in large part it has to do with the way capitalism um, saved itself by destroying, by destroying others. Um, the climate catastrophes that we're experiencing right now are wreaking havoc around the world. I mean, Pakistan, I mean, what Pakistan's going through, Pakistan has also um, gone through a lot of uh, neoliberal restructuring as, as a result of debt and things like that. Okay. Um, so as I said, uh, Mexico became the laboratory for a lot of this, and it became the most open um, economy in the world, and um, it was set back significantly. The, the irony, not the irony, the reality is, is that if you hear um, you know, the business, uh, the financial press, or, or if politicians talk about the Mexican economy in public, which they rarely do, you know, it's, it's heralded as this model of success because there's so much development. Um, but they use in, they use indicators to, like GDP and, they, and, and investment and things like that. They don't talk about the wages, working conditions, standard of living. First of all, you would have to explain why between uh, 1990 and 2010, like 8 million people left the country because they couldn't survive. Um, but second of all, you would have to look at the content of 
of of who owns what now, right? Because it because so much uh, is in the hands of of foreign capital, um, who um, and and so much of the wealth is exported in the form of repatriated profits each year. Um, you know, but in 1970, the average Mexican worker made one seventh of what the average U.S. worker made. Now they make about one sixteenth or one seventeenth, and that's at a time when U.S. wages have gone down, right? So, so the the actual scale of immiseration has significantly increased. Although there are certain sectors of the population where where material there have been material improvements because they're tied to this new economy. So it's not like uh, there aren't people who benefit from this. And in fact, I argue that the Mexican capitalist, a new kind of Mexican capitalist class emerges as um, you know, um, a, a partner that play a role in overthrowing these old, these old methods uh, you know, of governance and these old economic models. Okay, um, yeah, and as I mentioned, um, the wealth of, of, the, of, the, of the developmental estate in Mexico um, included the oil, the telecommunication, you know, we can go through all these different sectors of the economy that were state owned. And, um, and then they were sold off very cheaply. And in some cases, um, uh, well, in most cases, corruption played a role where people were, uh, well-placed capitalists were able to, and, you know, uh, state actors were able to um, swoop up a, a lot of this um, and make themselves very rich. Carlos Slim, one of the, I think he's now fifth or sixth richest person in the world, he owns much of the telecommunications grid, which used to, which used to be uh, public. It used to be state-owned, right? Now, but they, but he, that's where he, you know, that's where he went from being like a one billionaire to like a, a sixty billionaire, right? Um, that's that's the people's money that he got. That's the people's investments that he got. Um, and I, you know, in the U.S., it's even more mag magnificent in terms of how much how much wealth um, has been made through this process. Okay. Um, another thing that I want to point out, I'm digressing too much. So another thing I want to point out is uh, the 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 way in which the transition to this model of, open, of free markets and um, capital, you know, the restoration restoration of uh, unfettered access to Mexican uh, Mexican economy is the deunionization, is the destruction of the union the union movement in Mexico. Um, uh, Mexico has uh, what, what exists today is largely residual and relic unions from the from the post-revolutionary period. At the, uh, Mexico has had a once mighty working class that in the 1930s um, organized uh, along along the lines of the CIO in terms of its rebellious and militant character and um, organized general strikes across several industries in the, in the 1930s. Uh, all, all the way to the 1950s, that led to the nationalization of oil, the nationalization of the railroads. A lot, uh, you know, most of which has been since privatized. But the scale of the class struggle in that country meant that the Mexican workers have uh, played a significant role in demonstrating their capacity, even after the defeat of the revolution. Um, and the union, the union movement at its height under this uh, state capitalism model. Um, uh, you know, reached well over 60% of the workers who were in unions. And, um, and for large sections of the, of the Mexican working class, the material conditions improved significantly. And I talk about, I'm not trying to like, uh, I don't wanna like overestimate how great it was. Uh, and I wanna emphasize that it was the, the class acting as a class that made a lot of these major gains. And in fact, the state capitalist government of Mexico actually brutally repressed strikes when it couldn't, um, when it couldn't control them. Um, you know, uh, but I do wanna, I do wanna to emphasize that the Mexican working class has played one of the most heroic roles 
in, 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 in um, revolutionary activity, or, you know, or class struggle activity and revolutionary activity in the 20th century. And so when we look today and we look at the condition, you know, it's not a reflection of, of, of you know, it's not, it's a reflection of the major defeats and, and, and the destruction of their movement, not just by Mexican capital and the state, but, but, you know, very much supported and, and in many ways instrumentalized by the United States in terms of methods for breaking unions through um, different means. Um, so today, less than 1% uh, of the Mexican working class is in unions. It's one of the lowest rates in the world. Um, and um, where, you, where unions do exist, there are these like um, fake unions that, um, because after the transition from neoliberalism to free market capitalism, um, many, uh, you know, um, part of the, the sort of ideological work of capitalist investors was we're, we want to buy up, you know, we want to invest, we want to buy up, but we don't want unions, right? We don't want, um, we don't want unions. Um, and, and the state itself uh, in the 1980s and 90s was very accommodating to the, to the idea of creating a good climate for investment. And so um, the more, the more forward thinking of these backward union leaders was, well, we could switch, we can basically be, we could basically get paid by the company instead of by the union, although we'll still, by, by right of being rep representative of the workers, we'll still get paid through their union dues, but they won't have a say in anything that we do. And we'll get paid by the, by the, the companies to effectively police the workers um, from the point of like, um, um, well, from the point of being visible and not representing them to the point of actually physically breaking up, you know, independent attempts to form unions or strikes and things like that. Um, this is, this is a type of unionism like, a, uh, like an anti-unionism, right? And so some of these old uh, state anointed unions under state capitalism have since transitioned to like um, company unions that basically work for, for, for capital. Um, so for instance, um, right now or in the last few years in Mexico, they've, they've done this reevaluation of how much uh, workers are in unions. And they found that, you know, there's 580,000 contracts that cover almost all industries, but like eight out of 10 of them, they're, um, they're inactive, meaning they've never been renewed or followed. And, and for the other 20%, like most of them are actually companies where they, where they just basically now um, you know, keep unions, real unions out. So this is part of the way of understanding the boom for US capitalism, right? Is, and why so much capital is invested there is because this is, a, there's a much, you know, there's a high rate of exploitation that's been normalized into the, into the, into the Mexican um, working class's daily experiences. So for instance, um, Oh, let, let me let me let me develop that out a little bit more. So, um, so the supply chain concept is basically breaking up different, breaking up production into component parts, um, and moving the supply chains into Mexico. In this case, so like the the auto industry, which I'll talk about in a little bit more in a minute. Um, much of the uh, if you drive a car that was if you bought a car in the U.S., then the odds are that if not half some of it, half of it, all of it was either uh, produced um, in Mexican supply chains, but this became so prop profitable. Holy shit! Okay. <laughs> I thought I was doing better than that. This became so profitable that um, that now um, auto the automotive industry, eleven international car companies, GM is the largest, have moved whole production facilities into Mexico. Right? 
Um, and so, uh, so it isn't just that they're producing parts for cars, although that's part of it, they're not producing whole cars. Okay, let me, let me see what I can skip here. Okay, so the, um, so the average work week in Mexico, um, around 20% of, of registered workers work more than 48 hours per week. Um, for for uh, the range, the, the range is about $4 a day to $20 a day. Um, so this is really a high rate of exploitation. About 20% of, of the Mexico's 58 million workers work in directly in economies of export, either supply chains or producing things that are going to be shipped, or uh, and then another percentage I you know work now for companies that are U.S. based, right? Um, and so it's it's uh, a significant reorientation of the economy towards uh, towards the U.S. Eighty percent of everything that's produced for export in Mexico goes to the U.S. When Trump uh, a few years ago, when Trump threatened to um, impose a five percent tariff on goods coming from Mexico um, to compel them to um, support the extension of NAFTA. Um, Trump was informed, somebody whispered in his ear, hey, that's U.S. capital that you're taxing. <laughs> and he stopped talking about it. <clears throat> okay, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to my conclusion. And, um, so I want to give some examples of, of how, uh, a few examples of how, and hopefully I can do this in the last minutes, um, workers are being compelled by the economy itself to, to, to sort of align in common struggle or at least being affected by similar conditions that are pushing the struggle at the same time. In the period of 2017 to 2019, um, in, this, in the U.S., there was a coordinated assault on, assault on teachers' unions in, across the U.S. And in the, the, it had been happening for many years before that. I'm a teacher, you know, I, I remember, I have a long memory of this, but, I, but it's specifically in these years we see the imposition of really horrible contracts that are already... Uh, you know, uh, professions, especially in the, in the South, in the red states, as they called it, um, where conditions were already even more deplorable than for us, for our teachers in other parts of the country. And so this led to, uh, you know, the, the, the strikes, the, the, the series of strikes of teachers across the country in several states. Um, in many cases, wildcat, meaning they weren't authorized by their own unions. Um, and, and like in Arizona, they used Facebook to organize their strike, which was pretty cool. Um, and um, th these strikes were being uh, carried out at a time when, you know, billionaires, especially through their uh, foundations, but th their biggest foundation is the Democratic and Republican Party, right? So the, through their foundations, we're, we're pushing for privatization, more privatization, restructuring. And, um, and so it wasn't just a strike to defend wages. Or, or, or try to you know preserve what little we had. It was all uh, the political character of many of these strikes was anti-neoliberal. So like in Arizona, they called, they said that we stand for uh, not just better wages and working conditions, but we're calling for. I mean, they didn't strike on this issue, but they made a public declaration that we're going to push for one billion for the state to reinvest one billion dollars in, in in public education. So that so the political character reflected you know um, in many ways the class character of the of these of these attacks and and. Um, while that was happening, the same thing was happening in Mexico in, and in Honduras. Um, in, in 2000, uh, around the same time, too, after 2017, um, the Mexican government under Enrique Peña, Peña Nieto um, 
wanted to reform uh, the union law uh, for teachers and basically smash the union. And in Honduras, under Juan Orlando Hernandez, wanted to pass a privatization law. In both cases, the Gates Foundation and other um, neoliberal foundations from the U.S. were advising and offering to uh, fund to fund if these uh, privatization schemes were implemented into law. In Mexico, the, the teachers union, especially the left wing of it, which is called the Lacente, um, starting in the heart of that union in Oaxaca, they coordinated blockades and, sh and shutdowns of the capital city to stop the implementation of the law, organized mass marches across the country. In, in Michoacan, where my ancestors are from, they, the, the, the teachers there decided to blockade all of the railroads leading from the port of Lázaro Cárdenas, which is a major port that runs rail all the way up to the, to the U.S., and, and many of these railroads are actually U.S. owned. They blockaded them for three months. They basically said, you're not moving these trains until you withdraw this, um, not only withdraw your attack on the unions, but actually increase our pay. So all these things were happening at the same time, and Mexican activists and some U.S. teachers activists were saying, we should be in solidarity. We should be figuring out how to coordinate and how to, how to, how to um, support each other. Okay, I'm going to give um, one more. Oh, shit. Okay. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on the strike. I'm gonna focus on a few more strikes in the row. Um, in in the automotive industry, this is also more more apparent the interconnectedness between uh, Mexico and the United States. Um, automotive production is the largest manufacturing industry in Mexico, 21% of its of its GDP. It extends from maquiladoras, which are there's like a, thousands of these factories that produce parts that go into the cars or you know, other types of parts that go into different production. Um, and then they have like, um, like I said, they have like assembly plants all over the country. Um, Mexico, uh, 11 international auto producers have converged, making Mexico the sixth largest manu car manufacturer in the world. I mean, it's all foreign capital, right? Mexico used to have its own auto industry, but it was demolished um, after um, you know, the transitions of the 1970s. They couldn't compete after the markets were open. Mexico has 900,000 uh, auto workers. The U.S. has 1 million auto workers. Canada has 125,000 auto workers. Um, and in 2019, there was a, uh, a series of strikes that broke out in the maquiladoras in the, in the state of Tamaulipas and Matamoros. 45,000 maquiladora workers shut down um, like 48 different factories, all within the scope of three weeks. And it... Uh, the strikes lasted about, you know, roughly about a month, um, and then they were resolved. They all won, and why they won is because they were they effectively shut down the automotive industry because all of those parts meant that um, the cars couldn't be completed. Um, uh, by the way, the the organization of this of this, as far as we know, the organization was um, largely led by one woman, um, Susana Prieto Tarazas, who's a socialist, a labor a labor uh, lawyer. Um, and she largely organizes their, the new union that formed out of this uh, through Facebook message, through Facebook live Facebook. Um, and the workers, even the workers are, you know, there's a, there's like open mass meetings on 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 Facebook live. It's really really fascinating. That same year, there was a strike at General Motors, uh, and that strike um, was the first one in 50 years. It shut down 33 manufacturing plants, 22 parts distribution warehouses across nine states. 
It, it idled 50,000 U.S. workers. It ended up idling 6,000 Mexican workers because of the disruption of the movement of parts and, and, and things like that, and 6,000 Canadian workers. At issue included the closure of four jam uh, plants in the U.S. and the threat of shifting more production to Mexico. There's already several major GM um, plants in Mexico. Um, and GM uh, is the largest plant. It produces one million cars and annually, up to one million cars annually in Mexico. Um, while GM, while the UAW workers were on strike in Mexico, workers were trying to organize an independent union at a GM plant in, in a place called Silao, Guanajuato. And they were constantly being victimized by the fake union in the GM um, management. When the, and, and several of them were, were fired literally days before the strike uh, at, at, at GM because they were advocating that we should all go out on strike too. And they actually made an appeal. They made an appeal to all, all the workers to, go, to, to, not, um, to, to basically not work, not allow uh, GM to use the threat of shifting production to Mexico as a way to break the strike. And... <clears throat> Um, and they also had an international meeting with other auto workers in, uh, in Mexico and even as far as Brazil saying, let's all stand together to support this strike. And they wanted to, they wanted to go out on strike. And instead, the UA, UAW leadership unfortunately ignored the appeal and its chief negotiator, Terry Didis, instead focused on, well, we'd rather fight to bring the jobs back from Mexico. Right? That was their, that was their, their response. And there have been people in the UAW organizing, and there are people in the UAW saying we have to support, we have to organize to support and, and unionize workers. If we're all in the, in the same union, you know, essentially we, we can then fight for equal pay for equal work. And that's essentially one of the characteristics of the new struggles is that people at Walmart went on strike after the Maquilodoro workers and they won. Walmart doesn't allow a union here. They didn't want to allow the union there. Now they have one, right? Uh, independent union because, because of this. Anyways, um, after the strike, the UAW strike, which had mixed results, but could have, could, have, could have been an unprecedented victory, basically shutting down all North American GM production and creating the conditions for all GM, uh, North American GM workers to potentially have a contract, a common contract. Um, instead, they, 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 they took a, for what, what amounts to mostly a loss. And I described that in my book. But I want to point out that those same workers at Silao, Guanajuato, who were calling for the strike, just this year in June won a decertification of a fake union. 6,000 workers, the majority voted for this, for this union, and there's now this new thriving independent union that is guided by class struggle politics. Woo. Not only that, but like five days ago, they just won at a Mazda plant, also in Guanajuato. And so we, we're seeing the, between the maquiladora workers, the auto workers, and, and others I can't go into for time, but are in the book we see we see um, the potential for a, re, a, a rebirth uh, of, of radical labor union that is internationalist in, in uh, orientation. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up. I didn't get a chance to talk about migrant workers in the U.S., which is a, probably, now that I think about it, a whole other talk. But, um, but I, 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 I have writ written extensively in this book as well. I talk about how migrant workers, uh, cross-border workers from Mexico, Central America, et cetera, have been the you know really the the spark plug and detonator for revived labor struggle in many parts of the United States, and um, that inter you know within the nation that that international solidarity between 
um, transnational and you know U.S. born workers is essential for winning anything, anything anymore. And so, so these are the, the contours that I'm trying to, to outline here. And I and I have one sentence for my conclusion. Um, bosses use borders to divide, differentiate, and weaken class consciousness and potential for solidarity, and thus maximize capital accumulation and profit. This is the next stage in evolution of how capitalism has been rewired in North America. At the same time, their actions bring us closer in our commonalities into focus, while making cross-border, transnational, and international solidarity and struggle not only possible, but essential for workers to even have the capacity, the breadth of scale, and the power to defeat 21st century North American capital. It will take a revolution, and therefore a revolutionary party, to begin building for the explosions of struggle that surely lie ahead. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.